I'm Susan Moran. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, October 24th, 2023. Coming up, a cautionary look at how trying to engineer our way out of the climate crisis often backfires. Local journalist Stephen Robert Miller discusses his new book, Over the Seawall, Tsunamis, Cyclones, Drought, and the Delusion of Controlling Nature. We need to adapt to climate change yesterday, but we won't solve this problem with the same thinking we used to cause it. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. So we already know that artificial intelligence chatbox can lie, cite non-existent studies, and hallucinate to the point that they start ranting about destroying all of mankind, for instance. So wouldn't you know it, the one area where these bastions of AI seem to be responding in a totally predictable manner is that their answers are reflecting racial biases in the United States. That's the conclusion of a new Stanford School of Medicine study. Researchers gave artificial intelligence systems such as ChatGPT and Google's BARD a series of medical questions that mentioned race. The researchers found that when AI systems were asked about how black patients compared to white patients, it was not uncommon for the chat box to spout out racial answers and debunk theories about how racial differences affect medical needs. The scientific consensus for years has been that there is no biological basis to race. Yet when it comes to medical treatments, descriptive terms such as black or white do make a difference. Historically, people who healthcare professionals label as black have tended to be viewed as needing less health care, needing less pain medication, for instance. The Stanford study points out that there's no scientific basis for these distinctions. Still, the basis behind words like black and white have, well, colored health care, often leading to lower quality health care and less intervention for a patient who health care workers identify as black. Programs such as ChatGPT and BARD don't appear to distinguish between the latest medical recommendations and internet paranoia, marketing misinformation about debunked theories of race and health. So, if you're checking out your symptoms by using an AI chat box or working with a doctor who uses AI to give you answers about your health, buyer beware. On a more hopeful note, some medical groups, such as the Mayo Clinic, are working on AI systems that gather only from peer-reviewed medical and science journals, sources that by and large provide more reliable and racially unbiased information. Thanks to Howaner Shelley Schlender for that report. Around the world, millions and millions of chickens, including here in Colorado, have been killed this year alone to slow the spread of bird flu. Over the past several years, a highly lethal version of the avian flu virus, known as H5N1, has spread rapidly, killing many farmed and wild birds. The virus has become so widespread among wild birds that it has proved impossible to contain, and some nations have begun vaccinating poultry. CRISPR, a gene editing technology revolutionizing science and medicine, allows scientists to make targeted edits in DNA, thus changing the genetic code at a precise point in the genome. In a recent study, a group of researchers in the UK used CRISPR to tweak a chicken gene for a protein used 
by the flu virus to copy itself. The tweaks were designed to prevent the virus from binding to the protein and therefore keep it from replicating inside chickens. The researchers sprayed a dose of non-infectious flu virus into the nasal cavities of 10 control chickens that had not been genetically edited. All control chickens became infected and then passed the virus to other control chickens they were housed with. Only one in 10 gene-edited chickens treated in this way was just infected. It had low levels of the virus and did not pass the virus on to other gene-edited birds. Although this sounds like a great fix, the flu virus survived and flourished in the experimental birds. So this means that the treatment would soon become ineffective unless other chicken genes needed by the virus to complete its life cycle could be altered. The scientists are currently working on this procedure, which could eliminate the need for vaccination, and it would protect future generations of chickens for many years. The study was published last week in the journal Nature Communications. Are you looking for some sciencey things to do? Here's a suggestion now from How on Earth's Joel Parker. Coming up on the science calendar, next Monday evening, October 30th, Denver's Café Scientifique will host a presentation titled Wonders of the Plasma Universe, Connecting the Stars to Your Cell Phones. The speakers will be Dr. Saikat Thakur from Auburn University and Dr. Oak Nelson from Columbia University. The distant stars have always been a source of fascination, and our nearest star, the Sun, is vital to life on Earth. The sun is so much a part of our everyday lives that we sometimes might take it for granted. But what do we actually know about the sun? What is inside it, and why should we care? Researchers studying the sun and more local phenomena such as lightning have expanded our understanding of matter at incredibly high temperatures. Come to this Café Sci and glimpse the growing field of plasma physics to learn, along with hands-on demos, how studying the stuff of stars could lead to creating a sun on Earth, and how industrial applications of plasmas enabled manufacturing the cell phone you hold in your hand. This Café Sci will take place at the Fulganiti Pavilion on the Anschutz Medical Campus, 13080 East 19th Avenue in Aurora. The talk starts at 6.30 Monday night and ends around 8 o'clock. Note that this Cafe Sci will not have food options in the building, so you might want to catch dinner nearby beforehand. For more information, visit coloradocafesci.org. For How on Earth, I'm Joel Parker. listening to KGNU Science Show, I'm Susan Moran. One of the things that makes us human is our ability to problem solve. We want to create solutions to problems, but often our engineered fixes backfire and even make the problem we're trying to correct much worse. Take climate change, for instance. 
Journalist Stephen Robert Miller has been reporting on how technological solutions to the climate crisis, be they massive seawalls, re-engineered rivers, or grandiose canals that funnel distant water from the Colorado River to parched desert cities, often backfire. Miller is with us in the studio discuss, to discuss his debut book, which is due out next week. It's called Over the Seawall, Tsunamis, Cyclones, Drought, and the Delusion of Controlling Nature. Miller is a freelance journalist whose work has appeared in National Geographic, The Washington Post, High Country News, and several other publications. He was a Ted Scripps Fellow in Environmental Journalism several years ago at the University of Colorado Boulder, where he now teaches science writing. Stephen, welcome to the show. Hi, Susan. Thanks for having me. So I want to start by asking, what since you've been covering a lot of these issues for years, what got you to... Be so bold or crazy to expand it into book format. Definitely crazy would be the one I would go with. <laughs> um, I had a lot of the ideas bouncing around in my head for many years. I grew up in uh, southern Arizona in Tucson, and I had kind of always had this sense in the back of my mind that something that was happening there didn't seem quite right. Um, the fact that so many people would be moving to a place where it was so common to talk about things like water shortages, you know. Um, something so vital to life is so limited, it makes you kind of think twice. Um but at some point, I reached a place where I had come across so many of these stories happening all around the world, I realized there was a thread and I needed to connect them all. And the only way I could see to do that um, was through a book, just to, just to sit down for too long and just think <laughs> through this thing for years um, and, and try to make some sense of it all. So it's as much me making sense of it as it is trying to tell everybody else about it. Well, it's so interesting. Um, and we'll get to Arizona. But you have three key focal points, sort of case studies in the book, Arizona being one, Tohoku, Japan, where we had the Fukushima disaster after the tsunami in 2011, and then Bangladesh. And before zooming in on Arizona, which I think many can relate to here in the arid West, I want to ask you first about, like, how do you define bad adaptations? And because this seems to be the thread streaming through the book. And I know you've said that a lot of scientists, including the internet, National Government Governmental Panel on Climate Change have called these maladaptations. What 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 are they? Yeah, so the, this field of research has been around for some time, but it's definitely getting a lot more attention these days as we're all across the world in this huge rush to adapt to the impacts of climate change. So maladaptation, or I kind of in the book lean more on bad adaptation uh, for what it's worth. Um, is defined as essentially a, a, an attempt to adapt to a natural hazard, something like climate change, that results in negative unintended consequences. So it's not necessarily that the thing fails. Like a seawall mm. might actually be somewhat successful, and a, and a canal might might successfully bring water to a place where there is no water. Um, but it does mean that the, the, the infrastructure itself, or whatever it is, um, has these negative downstream impacts that can either be on people down the road, uh, in another country, people downstream. It could be people at another time, like generations down the road. Um, it also, one of the one of the ways to define it is it locks people into fewer decisions, locks us into a certain way of doing things in the future. Um, it can cause, a big one is it causes more greenhouse gases. So something like desalination or even just running an air conditioner, you know, is a way of adapting to heat and aridity in the desert, but actually can cause more greenhouse gases. So it, it causes the problem that it's trying to solve. So they're trade-offs, and we should all be aware, not just sort of policymakers and, and civil engineers, but of the trade-offs and what are the costs and benefits. Absolutely. Yeah, so I want to start a little farther away from home with the case of Japan, where we had the Fukushima nuclear power plant 
disaster, you know, killing many people from the tsunami that affected that. What what was the big issue there that you're highlighting in the book? What I highlight in the book, it's, well, it's the triple disaster, they call it. You know, it's mm. the earthquake, the tsunami, and then the nuclear plant meltdown. Um, and what I focus on in the book is uh, the seawalls in their relationship with uh, the deaths in the tsunami. So it was 2011 in March, um, in the ballpark of 20,000 people were killed in a very short amount of time. 20,000. It's really hard to wrap your head around it. Wow. Reporting there was extremely difficult and just trying to understand what happened I still don't think I clearly you know really have um, but I came across early at some point in my research I came across uh, studies that had lo- looked after the disaster at the death toll in cities and towns along the coast where there had recently been an investment in infrastructure like seawalls and levees and also where people didn't have any recent uh, experience with something like a tsunami. And what they found in those places was that the death toll was actually higher than in other parts of the country, behind mm. the walls. They also found that the uh, evacuation rate was slept, was lower in places where the, behind the walls or that people took longer to evacuate behind the walls. Behind pre-existing walls. That's right. Mm-hmm. So... It's important to know, you know, Japan had lots of walls all up and down the coast when when that wave came in 2011. The thing is, none of these walls had been built to withstand a wave at that level. I mean, this was something like you couldn't even wrap your head around the size of this wave. And I think it's interesting how you point out in your book that even the engineers and policymakers like, well, no one could have imagined that's right that scale. That's right. That magnitude. You're like, that's not good thinking. <laughs> and this is a country that, I mean, obviously no country on earth has more experiences, but more, you know intelligent design into dealing with tsunamis than Japan. And yet high level officials and engineers and seismologists quickly, you know, today easily admit to being taken totally off guard. Um, and the walls in some places actually were, they were, they were maladapted. They, they cause more people to be harmed. Why? What about them? The big thing there is the, um, the false sense of security. And this is something that I keep coming back to in the book because I think this is one of the most kind of pernicious aspects of this maladaptive infrastructure, right? It makes us think that we're safe. It makes us think that we're being taken care of. And I Mm. found the Japanese example also pretty interesting because in in America, we have all our stereotypes about other parts of the world. And one of the stereotypes about about, uh, Japanese people being um, uh, really involved with technology and really trust their government a lot. And I did find that when I was there, that was something that came up over and over again in my conversations with survivors, was that they trusted the government or people that they know who died trusted the government and the government's warnings, which turned out in the end to be way underrepresented what the way that was coming. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they believed that these walls would actually would save them. And in some cases, there was cases reported from the farther north, uh, in Tohoku region, it was the northeast part of Japan, where people actually stood on the walls and watched the wave come in because they believed oh. that the, this wall was going to protect them. Wow. And so that's clearly showing the unintended consequences of infrastructure that existed in, in this case before the big disaster. Right. So how good or bad has the solution of rebuilding been? And what are the lessons from that? Well, that was what really blew my mind is because after all that, um, the response from the government there has been to double down and build even taller walls mm. across uh, huge, much larger swaths of, of the northeastern coast. Not unlike levees in New Orleans with Katrina Absolutely. instead of rebuilding wetlands. Absolutely. Right. And it's, it, this is why it really kind of sticks to me as maladaptations because one of the things about maladaptation is it locks us into doing the same thing down the road. It kind of limits our options. And um, 
it was this was the way that they knew to deal with walls and so their response after a big wave was just to build even larger taller walls and i spent a lot of time in the book talking with the people who survived and who these are a lot of times fishermen um, whose livelihoods and culture depends so much on their connection with the sea being able to wake up every morning and see the ocean and um you know, they put a big concrete wall. These are massive concrete walls. It's, it's mind-blowing, the size of these things. Huge white Like structures. how high? This is one of the highest that uh, exists now? Yeah, like 60 feet. I mean, <laughs> sto- many stories tall uh, over your head. Um, these walls, you, they completely eradicate the connection between, you know, a person on the coast and, uh, and the ocean. And so people started to say, no, we don't want these walls in our communities. And there became a, a, a conflict between local people and their needs and um, you know the government and their attempts to try to do something after this horrific disaster. Whew. So what would you say are some key takeaways from the Japan example? Well, I think to not trust officials wholeheartedly, I think, <laughs> you know, not to blindly trust scientists um, is, a, is a good one. I and mean, of course, that's something you got to be really careful saying these days, right, for a lot of good reasons. But there is also an aspect of you know, there's value in local knowledge and, and local understandings of a place. And it's not just about how, you know, how tall this infrastructure is and, and uh, the slope of the wall and how successfully it might resist the impact of a certain size wave. It's also about how this infrastructure is going to affect the lives of the human beings who have to live behind it. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So for those who may be joining late, you're listening to KGNU's Science Show. I'm host Susan Moran. And I'm talking with journalist Stephen Robert Miller about his new debut book. It's called Over the Seawall, Tsunamis, Cyclones, Drought, and the Delusion of Controlling Nature. So let's bring it a little closer to home. One of the key, one of the three case studies you have is Arizona. And many can relate, given here we are in Colorado, on the upper basin of the Colorado River Basin, often at wars of sorts with Arizona. What was the key issue that you bringing up there the key issue is almost just how convoluted this mess has become um Hmm. in in the american southwest um but i focus particularly on the central arizona project the big canal that was built at the time it was the largest uh infrastructure undertaking in american history and this was built when in the 60s started being built in the 60s was finished in the mid 80s right um and it brings water more than 300 miles from the colorado river across the desert, uphill, across the desert, uh, to Phoenix, and then to its terminus down south of Tucson, where I grew up. And we can relate somewhat in Colorado with the big Thompson project, you know, diverting or funneling so much water from the west slope here, um, without which there would be no desert bloom and not many of the cities that exist in Tucson, right? That's Yeah, yeah, Tucson and Phoenix would not exist in the the way that they exist today. That's absolutely true without the canal. So you talked before about... um, just the false sense of security. Where does that come to play with this massive canal and all that it has spawned? I mean, the way I look at it, you have this area of the country is perennially one of the fastest growing areas of the U.S., and yet it faces some of the most extreme risks of climate change. It's obviously not sea level rise or cyclones, but extended drought, uh, water shortages, extreme high heat, which is killing people at at record levels every Mm -hmm. year these days. Um, also air, air quality issues and wildfire. Um, and yet the way we build in the desert with the sprawl and the, the intense amount of development that's happening there doesn't seem to really, in my mind, does not seem to, to, to make sense with the, with the reality of the climate impacts and, and the risks there. And I think that's largely due to the fact that we've created this false sense of security by bringing in this external supply of water. Um, 
I think early in my research, I had interviewing a, a re- somebody, a scientist at the University of Arizona, um, and I asked about the carrying capacity of the desert and whether uh, humans had reached or surpassed the, the carrying capacity of the Sonoran Desert there. Mm-hmm. And he responded that it doesn't matter anymore. The carrying capacity doesn't matter because we've, we've completely exercised ourselves from any kind of natural limit. And that may be true. I mean, it obviously is true. But is it safe? Is it sustainable? So if you were to be having this conversation with a policymaker, be it mayor or governor of Arizona, in any state, it seems like it's been so politically verboten to talk about slowing population growth. You know, they would say water flows towards opportunity, as some have in your book. What what would you say and what sort of responses do you get? Like, yeah, 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 we can keep building... We can keep building our way to population growth. That is, yeah, that's the response I most commonly get, right, is that people come toward opportunity. Um, so they're going to keep moving here as long as they're opportunity. Well, then my response, I guess, is like opportunity doesn't fall out of the sky. <laughs> you know, it doesn't grow on trees. We have to create it. And in the in, in Arizona, other parts of the country, uh, you know, there's huge tax incentives for businesses and for development. Um, and just the fact that the amount of federal funding that went into subsidizing the construction of the canal and all the, and all the dams um, that led up to it. Um, there's been a, a very concerted and expensive effort to create opportunity in this place. Um, and I think as we move forward, we need to be thinking more seriously about where we put that opportunity. And it sounds like, particularly with the farmers you focused on in the book, that a lot of them are abandoning their farms, whether it's because they can sell the water rights and get more money or, you know, not just because the next generation may not be wanting to acquire the farm, but it just doesn't make economic sense to be growing cotton anymore. And they don't anticipate there'll be enough water in the future. Is that kind of the trend you're seeing there? Um, yeah, the, the agricultural aspect of the story is is fascinating to me. I write a lot about agriculture. Because um, we should say that's the by far the majority of water consumption is for agriculture. Oh, ag- by, like yeah, three 80, quarters. Three quarters. Or, or up to, mm-hmm. Uh, of the uh, of the entire you know Colorado River is used on agriculture, and it's obviously been a sticking point for a long time. The the reason in the book I focused mostly on the farmers there is because they're the ones who are seeing the most immediate impacts of this, and that's kind of one of the tricky aspects of it, right? Is like if you're living in Phoenix, you might not even know there's a water shortage, you know, unless you're reading the news all the time. And a lot of people operate there as mm. if they don't know there's a water shortage because you know they're, they're they're watering their lawns and they're washing their car a few times a week. And for that matter, here we just don't pay much for water coming out of our taps. That's the other I mean, thing. I say that yeah. we generally, obviously, some people really can't afford. It, but it's just too cheap. We don't have to look. That's very absolutely right. Seriously, but the farmers are feeling it, um, mm-hmm. especially in the center of the state. That's because of part of the downstream impacts of the construction of the Cap Canal, the uh, debt that was incurred to build it. Uh, a lot of these farmers uh, have accepted a lower seniority on the river, which means that when it comes time to make cuts on the river, they're the first ones to, to go. And so in recent years, as I was working on this book, um, I spent a lot of time with some farmers, especially younger farmers, who were in a place in their life, they're around my age, and they were you know, building their careers, and they're about to inherit their family farm, which had been around for five generations in some sense, in some cases. Um, and they were finding out that they weren't going to have any water because they had, you know, their their father had accepted a deal that put them lower on the seniority list, and now they were going to be cut off because of the shortages. Mm-hmm. Wow. So, if you were to be able to wave a magic wand right now, let's start with Arizona. Would you tear down the canal itself? 
No. <laughs> I mean, no. I think, <laughs> um, and that's, you know, it, that's a, a tricky part of writing this book was like, how do, how do you mm. have anything useful to say about the stuff that already exists? I think what I'm trying to do is to get people to recognize the history of some of these things, to see how they come to be and who they benefit when they're built and who they don't benefit, who they take advantage of. Because that was something that came up over and over in the reporting of this book. And the, in the case of the Cap Canal, I mean, the Navajo people were, were very obviously taken advantage of. Mm-hmm. In order to get water several hundreds of miles uphill, you need a lot of power. Uh, and that power didn't come from windmills in Phoenix. It came from coal uh, in the Navajo Reservation. And so uh, Navajo people there have had to deal with the downstream impacts of co- of coal mining and, and coal development uh, in order to bring water to Phoenix. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I want people to just recognize when these things are happening in their homes, in their hometowns, and have some amount of information that they can show up to community meetings or and just and be, just be aware and have some input in the decisions that are being made for them. And I know in your book, you give some pretty positive examples, and I'm just going to allude to it as a teaser, since we don't have time to really go into it, and that is Bangladesh, how some have sort of broken down existing infrastructure and work with nature more to actually get more with less technology. Yeah. But I, I want to ask you uh, personally, your congratulations, kind of a new parent. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> of a five-month-old, yeah. and your clearly approaching as a journalist covering these kind of issues a parenthood eyes wide open i would imagine how hopeful or not are you feeling about your baby's future i mean i'm ultimately hopeful my son was born on mother's day and i think um at you know these bad adaptations will limit our options in the future and that's the thing that matters the most to me is i want to make sure that he has as many options as possible to deal with the changes that are coming because they're going to come fast and they're going to come hard We don't want to limit our choices for our children. Well, thank you so much, Stephen, for joining us. Thanks, Susan. Appreciate it. That was journalist Stephen Robert Miller talking about his new debut book. It's called Over the Seawall, Tsunamis, Cyclones, Drought, and the Delusion of Controlling Nature. You can see him give a couple upcoming book talks. One will be on November 2nd at CU Boulder. And the next after that will be November 28th at the Boulder Bookstore. We'll provide links to those on the website. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our show producer and executive producer is I, Susan Moran. This week's show was engineered by Sam Fuqua. Headline contributions by Beth Bennett, Joel Parker, and Shelley Schlender. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and X. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Susan Moran. <laughs>